Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology. And it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, bookshop.org, and your local independent bookstore. So please pick up a copy. And also, I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me. And 50 of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book, um, who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at the, at the front, will be there. And you can be there too. So if you go to my website, zibbyowens.com, and just click on Anthology and go to Book Tour, you will see um, a whole fundraiser section. And for $50, um, you can attend. You'll get a copy of the book, and you'll get to schmooze on Zoom with all of these amazing authors. This is like going to be the literary happening of February. So please come. I would love to see you all in person on Zoom, I guess, but even see some of your faces. I know so many of you are really loyal listeners, and that makes me really happy. All proceeds of the book and the fundraiser are going to the Susan Felice Owens Program for COVID-19 Vaccine Research at Mount Sinai Health System. And it is named after my husband's mother, who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. I interviewed Christina Baker-Klein twice, once for the North Castle Public Library event that I moderated, but unfortunately was not recorded. And then again, later that week when I did a regular podcast with her. So I feel very lucky to have gotten two back-to-back sessions because I feel like I could talk to Christina all day. Here's a little more about her. Christina Baker-Klein is a number one New York Times bestselling author of eight novels, including Orphan Train. She has been published in 40 countries and her novels have received received the New England Prize for Fiction, the Maine Literary Award, and a Barnes & Noble Discover Award, among many others. Her essays, articles, and reviews have appeared in publications such as the New York Times Book Review, the Boston Globe, the San Francisco Chronicle, Psychology Today, and Salon. 
Christina's latest novel, The Exiles, was an instant bestseller and was recently optioned for television by the producer of HBO's Big Little Lies and also The Undoing. In addition to writing, Christina serves on many advisory boards, is an artist mentor at Duke University and at Stony Brook University, and is an author advocate for the literary organization Room to Read. I hope you enjoy our second conversation, and I'm sad that you didn't get to hear our first. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Exiles. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And we just did, as we were chatting about before the podcast, we just did this fantastic event for the North Castle Public Library together last week, but it wasn't recorded. So we're going to do it again as a podcast, but at least now I got all this inside information about you from that. So sort of like a extra prep <laughs> session, but I promise this is being recorded. So we're all good. Okay, perfect, perfect. <laughs> so let's start with The Exiles. Can you please tell listeners what it's about and what inspired you to write it? Sure. The Exiles is the story of the convict women who transformed Australia and the Aboriginal people whose way of life was destroyed when British colonists landed on their shores. That is the sort of epic version of the description. It's about three women, essentially, who are transported. And there's one Aboriginal girl who ends up living with a British aristocratic family, and it's not so exciting for her and fun. So I read a piece in the New York Times maybe a decade ago that was in a column that Lisa Belkin used to have called Motherload. And to Zibby, I think you've contributed to it. Yes, I did. Yeah. I did. Much less highbrow of a piece, though. It was about like my kids, my being sad I couldn't go to like kids in sports or something with them anymore. And I had to sit on the sidelines. So, oh, anyway. that's, that's <laughs> totally fun. Well, I, you know, I was a mother of kids in the parenting needy ages. And so I always read it. And this one column happened to be about the convict women and how they took care of their children on the ships, which were often repurposed slaving ships headed to Australia for four to six months at sea. And I, I read that and I got this sort of tingle and I realized this is what I want to write about next. And it was totally intimidating because it's, it's in the 1840s and it's in Australia and England, neither of which I've really written about. I, I've written a little bit about, one of my novels has a character who's English. I grew up in England for nine years. I was born there and I have dual citizenship. So I feel a little bit on sturdier ground with that, but not so much with Australia. So I knew it would be a big project, but I had been obsessed with Australia ever since going there as a Rotary Fellow in my 20s. And I loved it. And I became really interested at the time in the story of the convicts, because of course, Australia was founded as a penal colony and 20% of Australians today are descended from convicts. And also learning about what had happened. It's a similar sort of parallel or inside out version, I suppose, of our own story of British settlers coming into America and taking over. So it was fascinating to research. But I also got in a women's prison and I did a book on feminism with my mom and interviewed all these women for it. And sort of through those those experiences, all three of them came back when I wrote this book, kind of came together. I can't believe that 20% of the people in Australia still are descended from, I mean, isn't that crazy? You would think that it would be like mayhem and disorder. And yet it's like the place everybody just wants to go visit and they're so laid back. What do you think that's about? That's crazy. I do think that the Australian sensibility is in part because of their origins as a penal colony. You know, these, these people 
came from a very stratified world in Britain where there was no social mobility. You could not go up and down the social ladder and there were no social programs and the poor were just stuck at the bottom. And they got to Australia. And even though the journey was difficult and prison life was definitely not fun, if you got out, and in fact, one descendant of a convict said to me, you know, our character is forged out of having survived all this and then being able to start anew and having all kinds of social mobility once they got out, becoming entrepreneurial, for example, and, and also this sort of irreverence and this kind of humor that you see a lot of Australian people share. I do think that there's something about that journey that was very specific and it makes them different than Americans. It's just a, they, you know, they, they weren't formed by religion was never part of the forming of that country. And it's a very different feeling. Well, I am sort of deep in American history these days. So I've been helping my 13 year old daughter study for her social studies test. So it's very fresh in my mind, exactly how we became a country. So that's all super interesting and sort of timely for what's going on in my house, at least. I love how these separate colonies show us different iterations of the British of the effect of British colonialism. How did your family end up, like, why did you, why were you born there and why did you leave in the UK? So my parents are Southern and they met at, at college and my dad was actually in, in a seminary. He was going to become a minister. They were raised Southern Baptist and he got a fellowship for a summer to go to Cambridge and study with Owen Chadwick, this very famous theologian. And he was... My father was the first person to graduate from eighth grade in his white trash southern family, basically. And wow. whereas my mother had come from a long line of teachers. So they were these two very different backgrounds. And I think she influenced him because he agreed to go to Cambridge for the summer. He thought it was just for the summer. And then he fell in love with learning there and became a Professor. He, he got a PhD studying with Owen Chadwick. He became a professor of British labor history of all things. My parents became total hippies and threw, threw off their Baptist shackles, I guess. And it was also at the height of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and the women's movement and all that. And they were very radically involved with all that stuff. And so then when we moved back to the South and my father, and they were sort of rabble rousers. And, and finally, my father was fired from this conservative college. He was teaching in all-male college for anti-American activities for like housing draft dodgers or, or something. And so they moved to Maine and he became a professor at the University of Maine because I think that was as far as you could get from the South without going to Canada. <laughs> So I'm, I'm, that's just a circuitous way of saying that that was how we ended up in England. And my parents became huge Anglophiles and my mother's sister married a novelist. And so we have relatives over there now. And my children even have dual citizenship because I was born there. So it's kind of wonderful oh. if Trump had, sorry to be political, yeah. but no, it's okay. <laughs> if things were, had not changed, we were very much considering. I don't know if you know Jane Green by yes, any chance. Of course. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. She's just relocated to London. And I know. And I've been watching her redo her house on Instagram. It's I love, don't you love it? 
her room, her like wallpaper, painting, whatever. Yes, I love it. Her bathroom. It's fantastic. Yeah. She's so fun. She's so, she fun. Is so fun. So we're sort of living through her. I'm sort of living through her. Yes, me too. <laughs> and this also gives more context because the other night we discussed your dad and how you didn't mean to, but ended up emulating his deep research skills and yeah. how you thought you were a novelist only and that you you know, sort of poo-pooed that whole, you know, cerebral, like sitting, just pawing through research. And yet your historical fiction has become, you know, a a cross between him and what you thought you were going to do. And now that I hear his trajectory, it's even more interesting. Yeah. I mean, he was sort of an autodidact, I guess you would say for a long, you know, growing up. And then the more educated, he just was in love with learning always. And so, but it was, he was meticulous and and he has like a dozen books and like he, I'm really proud of him because he, his brother and sister then went to college also. And, you know, then of course, subsequent generations. So it's like this whole, it's like this American success story of, of, you know, education changing your life kind of thing. But yeah, I started out writing contemporary novels and I loved that. And I stumbled into the orphan train story because my husband's grandfather was an orphan train writer, was was featured in this article. None of us knew. He was dead. And we discovered that he had this whole past that my mother-in-law never knew. So orphan train, only a third of that novel is set in the past, 100 pages. But that's what people think of when they think of the novel and obviously the title and all of that. But also because it was just such an unusual, people didn't know the story, even though a quarter of a million American children went on trains to the Midwest in a labor program ending in 1929. So that was how I got into researching. And I realized it's terrifying to write about the past. You know what? I remember reading a book by Katherine Harrison, a novel that was about footbinding. I think it was, she, she wrote contemporary books and memoir, uh, novels and memoirs. And then she wrote this book set in the past. And I thought, my first thought was, why would she do that? It's so, <laughs> that's so weird. And then my second thought was, that's way too hard. I could never do that. I, I would never presume to understand any culture other than my own. That seems ridiculous. And then Orphan Train, I sort of was terrified every second that I was writing the stuff set in the past, but I kind of learned I could do it. And then the next book was a whole different challenge about Andrew Wyeth and the subject of his painting, Christina's World. And then this book was an entirely different challenge. But I guess writing Orphan Train made me realize that I, I, big lesson, here's a big lesson for aspiring writers. Don't box yourself in. Don't tell yourself what your style is or what your subject is or what your interests are or what you're capable of. You never know. And you, if you take chances, you'll surprise yourself always. And it might not always work, but in the case of my writing these books, like I wrote my way into learning that I could write this way. And that you obviously liked it. I mean, you must've enjoyed it. Yeah, that was the thing, right? That was your original (laughs) point. Just that my father, his research style and everything, I thought like, I will never do that. And I do do that. I do do that. I take notes the same way he did. And we both write longhand. We talked about that the other night. And yeah, I love that part of it. With that said, I was just, I did an event with Lily King last month and we were talking about- I love her too. I know. I love her too. She's so great. And, but she has written a contemporary novel after writing one set in the past and she's like, oh my God, it's so much easier. 
And I was reminded that it is a little easier to write about the world you know. And so at some point, I will definitely do it, do it again. And maybe I'll bring some of the what I learned about this stuff to the present day, but we'll see. But then you said your next one, you're like making Ugh. the same mistake again by delving into Civil War history. And like <laughs> it's so stupid. The Civil War is like the worst period to write about because there are so many real experts. I mean, what am I doing? So I'm just going to, it's about two couples and sort of, yeah. And I'm just going to sort of hew closely to their world. <laughs> so we'll see. You know what? It's great. I mean, you're, you obviously enjoy challenging yourself on some level and that's okay. I mean, you're doing it. I mean, maybe it's too easy. Maybe you thrive on it. I don't know. You know I mean, what? Here's another secret that's not secret. I think that writing about the past in some ways makes it easier to have or makes plot easier because writing about the present is sort of amorphous. And if you're writing about people in your own sort of world in a way, then you have to make terrible things happen to them. I mean, you know, what something has to happen in a novel. So you put people through misery in one way or another. That's sort of the plot of every novel. <laughs> and in some ways, writing stories set in the past gives you more of a frame for the story. And I, that's what I have trouble with. Like the words on the page are one thing, but really the structure and the plot, I could just write and write and not have a plot, but that is not how a novel works either. <laughs> I was just talking to to people about, you know, some Holocaust era fiction and how just knowing it's about World War II or the Holocaust or something, you already know the general plot. You might not know the sub stories and exactly what the book's about, but you already are like moved and emotional and you know where your emotions are going to go because of that. So it's almost like not, I mean, no, this is going to sound come out the wrong way. It's not cheating, but it's you're relying on an inherent structure, which is sort of what you're saying about some of your stories. Not cheating, though. Of course, it means you're no, like no, no. I totally know what you mean, and actually, I've never writing that way. I, I am flabbergasted at the ongoing interest in novels about World War II. And of course I get them all across my desk, you know, in advanced reading copy form because I write about the past. So, but there, I, I can't, it, it's amazing to me the appetite for World War II fiction that doesn't end. And in fact, I was talking to an editor about it who said, we thought, we really thought it was a trend that, you know, they have all these trends in publishing like chiclet, whatever. And then you never hear that anymore, right? But she said, what we're finding is that there's an endless appetite. Like not all the books succeed, but you're exactly right. And I actually, Zibi, had never thought of it that way, that it is about knowing what you're getting in a certain way when you read a book about World War II, especially a novel. And not to be, not to generalize too much, but a, but a novel by women with a certain kind of figure on the cover is going to yield a certain kind of story about World War II. Yeah. So, and if yeah. you like that, then you can just keep dipping into that well. I mean, one of the things for me is that I get, I don't want to, and maybe someday I will, but I don't, I don't want to revisit the same territory. So I've all my, even though I've written three books set in the past, they're all very different from each other and they're all very different parts of the world. And and of the well, past. it's not like the past is limiting. <laughs> right, I mean, that's right. Write about anything, anywhere. It's like the world is your oyster. You could do this forever. I mean, yeah. you probably will do this forever, right? You, I mean, there's an endless amount of 
really interesting things. And particularly with the exiles, I mean, I didn't know a lot about this at all. And I feel kind of like a moron, like even (laughs) with all the things that I've learned from you about it, but even the idea of being like trapped on a boat with your children for three to six months, even that alone, that little tidbit when like, I can't even like drive from here to the grocery store with all four of my kids sometimes. <laughs> and I'm like, how do people do that for months on end with like no iPads or no nothing to no distract nothing. them? Oh God, I know it's it's just amazing what they went through. But we we don't know the stories of the poor and the dispossessed because that is not, those are not the people who who write history, who write, our, who write the history, you know, History is wars and presidents and generals and treaties and robber barons and, you know, and the the wealthy and the educated, the people who are in power. And the people I write about are not in power, are not the people in power. They're the quiet stories. They're the stories that nobody has heard. And, you know, this story of the convict women, as you say, every continent has its own stories like this. And a lot of them are still ongoing. So it's, that's one of the things that writing about the past opens you up to, I think, is the realization. I think we talked about this the other night too. (laughs) That's okay. The realization that yes, things have changed in some amazing ways. And it's great to recognize that, but a lot of things stay the same. Character is the same in some ways. In other words, the feelings people had in 1840 are as real and as deeply experienced as the ones we have today. And that I think that's what I try to do in these novels is to stay very close to the bone in terms of in terms of making my characters feel as if they could live now. So that readers experience these situations through their eyes in a way that feels familiar in some ways. I'm not trying to approximate what someone wrote like in 1840. I'm writing as a contemporary writer about the past. And so if the books succeed at all, I think it has something to do with that, that sort of impulse to make it feel fresh and modern, to make 1840 feel as relevant as, you know, 2020. Which you totally did. And you also do it by letting the reader into sort of the inner world of your characters. And even though, like if you were to see a picture, not even that there were pictures, but you know, like a sepia toned, you know, brown and white picture, people seem so different, right? Oh, they must look, but they're not. Like the child, I always forget her name. Mathena. Thank you. Mathena is still just an, like she's an orphan who's looking for, doesn't want to go off with strangers. I mean, that's any child today, right? Yeah, And then, exactly. of course you poke fun at the people who actually were real people in real life with their snootiness and wanting to like, you know, dabble in basically child snatching for their own amusement. Right. So you immediately put us there and it feels so real, which is great. When I was researching Orphan Train, I was at New York Public Library a lot, and the Lewis Hind collection of photographs of, of immigrant children working in factories, you know, the lives of the poor, really interesting stuff. And a friend of mine on Facebook, Margaret Bruchuk, is doing a project where she's working with an expert colorist, and they're taking his photographs and it's stunning. I'm going to send you one of them. Oh, good. It looks like my child or me or it's standing there because it's, she makes it like an, as if it's a, today. And this kid's standing on a factory floor and you're like, wow, this is not this cracked sepia tone, you know, photo. This could be now. Wow. Yeah, it's cool. And so that's sort of what I'm trying to do, I guess, is a written form of that idea of colorizing, you know, of making a story come to life that's that seems as if it's in the dusty pages of an old book. 
And tell me about all the different movie-ish, whatever adaptations of the various projects you have going on. Uh, well, my three latest novels have all been optioned, two for does the big screen even exist anymore for movies? And the latest one for a series, which is where everything is going these days. And the team that bought The Exiles is all female. They're half in Australia, half in Sydney, half in LA. And they're just so fun and wonderful. And I'll be executive producing and hope to be quite involved. COVID has delayed everything. But they did Big Little Lies and The Undoing that we saw recently on HBO. and Which we watched start to finish from like 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. <laughs> nonstop. We could not get off the couch. Whole thing. I couldn't believe it. This was like last weekend, by the way. <laughs> well, isn't that, don't you live somewhere near where they filmed the, the oh, house? Yeah. I yeah. live in the middle of every scene. I felt like I was <laughs> in the movie and I'm glad I watched it while I was in the city because I was like, you know, she could have been walking down my block as I was watching it. Yes. Totally. Um, I just found it really, it's, I mean, fun and stylish. And anyway, I, I think all of us got a little boost in the dark days of yes. November watching that. Though I have heard from some Upper East Side moms, like nobody would dress like that. So anyway, but we'll leave, all that. Those we'll leave that alone. <laughs> anyway, well, Christina, thank you for doing another, you know, conversation with me. That's so fun. I feel like I could just like chit chat with you about your work and why you do the things you do and, you know. Well, next time we'll talk about you because I think Um, you have a very interesting (laughs) life and I want to hear more about it. And I can't wait till we can hopefully get together in person. Me too. I really, that'll be great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is so delightful and I'm thrilled to have gotten to do it twice. (laughs) Yay. I hope it's entertaining for people. It was entertaining for me. So that's all I care about. (laughs) That's good. Well, have a great day, a snow day. And yes. hope to see you again. You too. Okay, All right. Bye. Bye. And just a reminder again, please pre-order a copy of my book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. And go to my website under the anthology tab for the fundraiser. And I hope you'll buy a ticket and join me for, and I should have mentioned um, all proceeds go to COVID-19 research. So please join me for the fundraiser. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 